0: If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Wednesday, August the 21st, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Wayland, Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Research Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. My guest for this podcast is Dr. Shelby Steele. We're doing things a little differently this time. Ordinarily, I have someone in the Hoover studio uh, to interview, but you're about to hear a recording of an interview I did with Shelby Steele, at the Hoover Summer Policy Boot Camp, uh, something we do every year before the Stanford uh, school year begins, we bring in uh, college students from across the country and uh, spend a few days with them, doing lectures. They meet fellows, they talk p- uh, policy. It's it's quite a quite a good engagement for them. Uh, for this uh, year's boot camp, I was asked to interview uh, Shelby Steele, and indeed, that's what I did. So, as you listen to the podcast, you'll hear uh, Shelby's introduction, and we're going to
1: talk about race relations.
0: So. Stay tuned. Here comes a recording of my interview with Chubby Steele.
1: everyone. Welcome back. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, Bill Whalen, who is going to be conducting this interview, and then he's going to uh, give a lengthy introduction of um, uh, the uh, interviewee. So, uh, first, uh, Bill Whalen is the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism and a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. Uh, He Uh, Writes comments on campaigns, elections, and governance uh, with an emphasis on uh, California and America's political landscapes. He's a columnist for uh, the Sacramento Bee. Uh, His columns are very heavily read uh, uh, within California and uh, across the United States. He's also uh, published in the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, uh, Real Clear Politics, and the LA Times, among uh, among other venues. Uh, He uh, served as a uh, chief speechwriter and director of public affairs for former California Governor uh, Pete Wilson uh, in which capacity he was responsible for uh, the governor's annual uh, state of the state address as well as other uh, major, uh, major policy uh, addresses. Uh, so he has uh, extensive experience and, uh, uh, as a uh, political advisor, speechwriter, writer, and, uh, and researcher and we're very glad he's conducting this interview. Um, the uh, interviewee is uh, our own Shelby Steele, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. I won't say more about it in order to uh, give Bill the opportunity to, uh, to do so. One thing I do want to say is that uh, Bill um, uh, runs a uh, very popular uh, podcast here at Hoover called Area 45. And uh, this session is going to uh, be turned into uh, one episode of the podcast. So, you know, podcasting live from the Hoover Institution Summer Policy Bootcamp. So, Thank thanks you. very much to both of you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Steve Barton, the comedian, did a comedy album decades ago. Is when there was such a thing as albums, to date myself. And uh, on it, uh, he's doing stand-up at a, a, a concert hall in San Francisco. goes, you guys are going to be on an album. Everybody applauds wildly. He goes, someday, maybe, not mine. <laughs> um, show of hands of how many of you have cell phones? Show of hands of <laughs> how many of you have not turned off your cell phone or put it on mute? <laughs> I only ask because we're doing a podcast. So I was uh, at the movie. I was at the Tarantino movie the other night. Uh, Interesting movie, to say the least. And sure enough, a guy in front of me had his cell phone on. It went off. He fumbled for it. And it seems like an eternity in the theater when you fumble for it. So appreciate it if you have it turned down. Sure enough, she's reaching for hers. Thank you very much. Um, about our distinguished guest today. Shelby Steele is the Robert J. and Marion E. Oster Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, specializing in the study of race relations, multiculturalism, and affirmative action. He has written widely on race in American society and the consequences of contemporary social programs on race relations. In 2006, Shelby Steele received the Bradley Prize for his contributions to the study of race in America. Two years prior to that, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal. In 1991, his work on the documentary Seven Days in Bensonhurst was recognized with an Emmy Award and two awards for television documentary writing, the Writers Guild Award, and the San Francisco Film Festival Award. Dr. Steele is also a prolific author. Among his books is The Content of Our Character, A New Vision of Race in America, which received the National Book Critics Circle Award. He's written extensively for major publications, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and has appeared on national current affairs news programs, including 60 Minutes. Shelby Steele holds a PhD in English from the University of Utah, an MA in Sociology from Southern Illinois University, and a BA in Political Science from Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Shelby, thanks for joining the Summer Boot Policy Camp today.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So we are going to talk about a very tricky, complicated topic, and that is race relations in America. Uh, We will carve out 15, 20 minutes at the end of this to to, to take care of your questions. Let's start this off, Shelby, though. Let's start this off personally. You are the product of what once would have been called a mixed marriage. I don't know if that phrase is still acceptable or not in America. Uh, Good question. As I researched this, I found among the complications, once upon a time when there was a phrase, when a black man and a white woman married, or a white, a white man and a black woman married, it would be called an amalgamation. The child would be called biracial, multiracial, racially fluid, where there's all kinds of names to this. I'm curious about this, though. As you're growing up with a black father, your father was a black man, a truck driver, right? Your mother was a social worker. How did they meet in of curiosity? How did,
2: how how did they, they meet? They were founding members of CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, right. which was one of the uh, very first and most prominent civil rights groups. And that's where they met. Uh, and a couple years later, they got married. A couple of years after that, I was born. <laughs> so, uh,
0: and not to date you too much, but this is post-World War II America. Um, Interracial marriage is not legally sanctioned by the Supreme Court until 1967, so this is mm-hmm. 20 years before that. So That's right. How did a man and woman exist in America in that kind of range? Of-
2: uh, my parents were extraordinary people. Um, my mother had a master's degree from the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. My father was a truck driver from the South uh, who, who went no further than the third grade. Mm-hmm. Yet he was the intellectual uh, he was the well-read. He read everything. Taught himself to read uh, and to write, uh, and he was uh, he was quite a man. So, and my mother was formidable herself. Was uh, you know organized the community we lived in. Brought in a baby clinic. She changed the school system. She was. They both were involved all their life in, in civil rights, and uh, uh, until they died. Uh, they, they both were. So um, they were just, you know, I'll never live up to them. They were extraordinary. And uh, as you say, it was a time when interracial marriage was certainly not, it was completely unheard of uh, and, and frowned upon and, and universally. Um, yet yeah, you would never know that from the And a source of the discrimination
0: respond. in terms of housing, for example, would be difficult for Sure,
2: to sure. If you marry a black man, you live with blacks. You live in a black community. So that's where the, we grew up. I grew up in Chicago, South Chicago, South Side, and rigidly, ruthlessly segregated uh, city. And this was the white side of the street. This was the black side of the street. And I couldn't play across the street in their yards. We let them play in ours, but we could never play in theirs uh so it was a on, and people talk about uh, mixed marriages and, and and biracial this language didn't exist um i w- I grew up as a black in a black segregated neighborhood went to a black school knew largely black people um and it, it became, no one knew I was from an interracial marriage unless it was announced somehow. Uh, so I, the experience of a mixed racial person um, is not one that I really have, uh, that I really digest or identify with because it just wasn't an option. It wasn't. It wasn't. Today, people are are biracial, who come from whose parents are, are different races. Then. Uh, that was not the case. You were just black with a white mother.
0: Was this ever discussed at the dinner table at your family? Because you would have looked at your mom and dad and realized that they were different ethnicities. I'm Caucasian. When you grew up up Caucasian, when you grew up white, you don't necessarily think about your identity. Maybe you think it in terms of if I'm Italian or Irish, but you don't think in terms of racial terms like that. Did your parents ever discuss this with you?
2: Never. Uh, I can remember uh, in the late 60s when... Black militancy became the rage, and people, and I used the word identity with my father, mm-hmm. who said, "Well, what is what is this identity? What do you mean? What are you talking about?" They had no I, identity; was not an issue. They they were Americans, uh, and they were they were angry because America would not allow them to fully participate. It wasn't that they disagreed with America, uh, and so I was never. None of this identity thing sort of meant much, nor does it mean much now. Um, it, it's uh, whenever I hear the word, I know somebody's playing politics. Somehow, there's a quest for power. Uh, always, it's never, it's never, uh, it doesn't exist in a positive sense. Um, what, what the blessing of America is that we're allowed to live as individuals. I insist on that. That's my radicalism. Uh, and I got that from my parents.
0: You would have come of age in the middle 1960s. So mm-hmm. we have an audience here. Everyone in this audience is somewhere between about 19 and early to mid 20s, <laughs> right?
2: So.
0: Um, you're telling them how
2: old I am. Is what you... <laughs> oh,
0: they're good at math, they'll figure it out. Uh, <laughs> you would have, so by the time you would have been old enough to drive, let's say, or vote. It would have been the middle of the 1960s. The first election you would have voted in would have been 1968. So you came of age in a really fascinating time in America, the 1960s, right on the heels of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, right before Martin Luther King was assassinated. This is a time of both promise and also peril in America. Can you explain to this audience what it was like to be of that age at that time in America versus today?
2: Uh, I could, yeah, I, I, could, I could write a book about that. <laughs> um, I, as I say, I grew up with parents who were in the civil rights movement. I was in the civil rights. I demonstrated. I did all of those things. Um, in my family, Dr. King was a newcomer, and we were very insecure about whether he really had a good feel mm-hmm. for <laughs> for civil rights or not. Um, he turned out to be pretty good uh, pretty good at it. Um, but That was my orientation. The orientation of the Civil Rights Movement in those days was literally civil rights. The right to vote, the right to do this, the right to do that, Um, to not be discriminated against in housing. Every time my parents moved, they had to go to court. Mm -hmm. Um, Same as when I started out, I had to go to court every time because people, discrimination was just, was was the norm. Um, But, You know, at that time, when mid-60s, 67, I think it was, Stokely Carmichael used the phrase black power. No one had ever heard that before. It was audacious. Um, And my background, civil rights, was very much against the idea of race as a source of power. They understood that race, anytime it was, it was brought out and emphasized in any way, was a power move on the part of somebody. Uh, and they thought black power was horrible because it meant you were going to compete with the large, you're gonna, you can get wiped out now. The only thing we had going for us was the fact that, that race did not make us different, did not bestow an identity, that we were American individuals who had the right to live that way. Um, and so th- this, was a, th- this was a very tense moment in black America. Uh, and the sort of, I suppose you'd call them the avant-garde at that point, H. Rap Brown, Stokely Carmichael, Eldridge Cleaver, any number of others, um, moved things into race and identity and blackness. And blackness was beautiful and you're celebrating this identity. We're still in that sort of militant, racially focused uh, idea, identity focused idea of ourselves, which has turned out, as my parents would have predicted, uh, disastrous. Um, it, it, it has cut us off and uh, at, at the knees. Right at the moment in 64 civil rights bill when we first became free and got freedom. Um, Then within two years, we'd given it away because we we were going to be black and be honored and and celebrated and so forth uh, because we were black. Well, it was um, I myself, now you would be personal about it, uh, went with that. I was torn. uh, But as, as time went on, as the 60s deepened, I was the student student the president of the Black Student Union at on my campus. Uh, we went in, we took over the president 's office. I smoked cigarettes, then I let the ashes fall on the floor uh, we There had to be a, some sort of display of arrogance uh, and we were all proud of that and um, the The thing that was that will fascinate for me forever is that after I gave this long rant and let the cigarette ashes all over the floor. I just knew the president was sitting there, was gonna you know, bring down the gods and, and throw us out. He didn't. He got up, he said, Let me see your list of demands. He went over the list, right on the spot, okayed almost the entire list. Even though there were silly things on that list. Um, that made no made no sense. Well, it was my, one of my first experiences with white guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and the terror, the idea that he was afraid of me, who had no, was black and had no place in American life, and what was revolutionary to me. And, uh, uh, and as time went on, came to understand that the real unacknowledged power, in race relations in America is not black anger, it's white guilt. We have, as blacks, defined ourselves in order to exploit that guilt. We've created a black identity grounded in victimization uh, that, that simply would not exist were it not for white guilt, were, not, we're whites not like my college president, willing to jump out of their seats and give us everything we wanted. Suppose he had said, hey, you can demonstrate all you want. You're not going to get this and you're not going to get that because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to stop teaching Western civilization because there was colonialism and imperialism. Then you'd be ignorant. You won't know what the Enlightenment was. You won't know what the Reformation was. You, don't know, you won't know the principles that evolved over so many centuries, millennium. Uh, and, well, this is I, I, the, the whole phenomenon of, of white guilt, of uh, where whites, in effect, desperately need to be vetted by black anger. The angrier the black, the better. Um, That's the, that we have allowed, as blacks, we've allowed that to corrupt us. And we produced a whole generation of leaders, Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, people I know, uh, who just really had a heyday uh, on, on white guilt. Hundreds of millions of dollars shaking down American industry Transforming the school system in America, which is now a shadow of what it was when I was a kid, Um, whites have just simply been lived in terror, literal terror, of being seen as racist, and will not do anything to to breach that. And we have, if we every white knows, if you if you get if you come to somehow be seen as a racist. Um, you're finished, you're gonna be vaporized, your career is gonna be what? you'll have no, no place.
0: Okay, let's, let's talk about that word racist. Um, it gets thrown around in this political environment, election coming up, Democrats call Republicans racist, Republicans call Democrats racist, it's a word I think that is being over harvested, over mined. I wanna to read to you three quotes, Shelby, and I want you to tell me if these three people are in your opinion racist. First one is the actor Liam Neeson. How many of you know Liam Neeson? How many of you go to Liam Neeson movies? Eh, Not too many. (laughs) It's kind of of an acquired taste. Liam Neeson. He is uh, last year promoting a movie called Cold Pursuit. It's a revenge movie. He is doing an interview, and he is asked about his experience with violent crime, and he tells the story of a friend who was raped 40 years ago in the streets, and he said he, quote, once roamed the streets, his words, he roamed the streets in search of his words, exact words, the black bastard, the black bastard, the word he used, who allegedly assaulted his friend. So Liam Neeson, number one. Number two, Hulk Hogan. How many of you know who Hulk Hogan is? How many of you go to pro wrestling? Liars. (laughs) Yet somehow you know who Hulk Hogan is. Hulk Hogan is caught on a sex tape. Not a good thing to be caught on a sex tape necessarily. Also not good to have audio to go with the video, but there's audio on the tape. And on the tape, he is caught saying the following about his daughter, quote, I'm gonna let you guess what some of these words are, quote, if she was going to F some N-word, I'd rather her marry an eight-foot-tall N-word worth $100 million, like a basketball player. So Liam Neeson, Hulk Hogan, and then our third contestant Shelby Donald Trump, who says of four members of Congress, all women, all minorities, quote, why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came? Is this all racist?
2: Well, if you mean by my meager lights, is it racist? <laughs> it gets um, portrayed.
0: All these are portrayed by the media as racist episodes, and they all have the thread, which you right. alluded to earlier, in which there are possible career enders or time spent having to explain what you said.
2: I don't care whether they're racist. It's a, this is the thing that's so fascinating about American uh, racial, why would I care? Say what he wants to say, they can, you know, they want to they speak in that way, then, um, then they're, they're perfectly free. It, it, the thing that we have to understand is that the systematic oppression of black Americans is over with. It's over. Thank God, it's over. I grew up in segregation. I know intimately what real racism is like. These are trivial little things. Um, nothing for me to worry about. I'm going to worry if people say, well, well, because you're black, you can't go to that university, or you can't uh, follow this profession. You, uh, Some restriction on my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what the, the only only liberals are interested in those questions of whether that, that's racist or not. That's how white America plays with these these little silly things that have nothing to do with with what he's, what Liam Neeson says is what Liam Neeson says. It it is, or what what uh, Donald Trump says uh, is what Donald Trump says. It it doesn't. There's no mechanism anymore in American life to use that to oppress me. I'm free. I'm absolutely free. My problem today is not racism. It's freedom. I don't know what the hell to do with it. Four centuries of oppression uh, hurt your ability to seize freedom and know how to live with it and, and turn it to your advantage. It's, it becomes a very frightening thing. That's the situation Black America is in today. This kind of thing, I'm, I'm not gonna miss a beat. Right, but the President Shelby
0: has a problem, and it's perception. Quinnipiac, Quinnipiac is university in New York, they do polling, poll came out last month, 80% of African Americans think the President's a racist, 51% of all Americans think he's a racist. And remember back to yeah. what with Richard Nixon, where he famously yeah. says, I'm not a crook. He has to spend time trying to disprove a negative, and that's a situation Donald Trump is in right now, trying to disprove a negative that he has- Can not. he do that? I don't know if I'm asking you. Can he do this? When, who's
2: ever done that?
0: I don't know. Has anyone ever done it?
2: Not that I know of. That, that's, why we, that's why it's used so much. Mm-hmm. It, anytime somebody uses racism, the, word, the term racism, they're looking for power. They're exercising power. And there is enormous power in, in that word. I can, what, I can go and complain to the head of Hoover Institution that you, you uh, were racist when you interviewed me. Mm-hmm. And that would get some attention. That would, <coughs> and if, if I got some other people to go along with me and say, yeah, we were there, we witnessed it, you'd be in real trouble. Yeah, but I also have a job on MSNBC,
0: MSNBC the next day, so.
2: Well, you, you uh, I don't think you're not MSNBC. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not them, maybe Fox, but I don't, I don't know about.
0: How many of you read the New York Times on a daily basis? How many of you are familiar with the production they have right now called The 1619 Project? Good. The 1619 Project, Shelby, this refers to, we're sitting on top of a historic anniversary um, in North America. We are literally on the 400th anniversary of a ship arriving in Virginia. Uh, a ship ironically called the White Lion. It was a privateer, and it arrives at Point Comfort, which those of you you from Virginia know is right across from the Norfolk Naval Base, Hampton Roads. And on an August day in 1619, it delivers 20 black men in chains, Uh, men who were captives seized in what is modern-day Angola. This is the beginning of slavery in in what is now modern-day America, 1619. The New York Times took it upon itself to do a Project Shelby, and its mission statement, I'll read it to you, is, quote, no aspect of the country that has been formed here has been untouched by the years of slavery that followed. On the 400th anniversary of this fateful moment, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully. Have you been asked to write for oh this? Oh,
2: God, I'm going to... No, I haven't. No. I, I don't think they're that. <laughs> Would you write for it? The, you know, what we. why are they doing that? Why are they something that's this fundamentally silly and childish? Because they are trying to expand racism as a tool of power. And they're afraid racism really doesn't exist in a meaningful way anymore, which means they are going to be impotent. They're going to lose power because nobody's afraid of it anymore. You have people like Shelby Steele saying the oppression of black people's over with. They can't, so, so then they, the next, you wake up in the morning and here they are uh, saying, oh my God, no, we've gotta go back, racism, look how evil, look how horrible, look how... and it was horrible. It was indisputably horrible. Uh, but what does that have to do with the situation, what they won't say in the New York Times is that by almost every indication, every measure, racism is diminished or disappeared in American life. Mm-hmm. In fact, in American life, white guilt is a far more uh, likely where where there is a kind where whites are simply trepidatious, lived in in in, some, in anxiety about whether they're going to be seen as racist or not. That's the real story. So if the New York Times wants to, wants to do that, but I'm sick and tired of people like the New York Times w- using black people once again for their means to power. Not blacks, but their means to power. The New York Times, liberalism generally in America. Uh, and so what, what is valuable to, to white liberals is an angry black man. They love nothing more. Then, and, and God knows if he's really victimized, then you, you lift him to sainthood. I'm doing a, a, a doc, film documentary at the moment and researching people and done a lot on Ferguson, Missouri and the shooting of Michael Brown and so forth. Hands up, right? Yeah, hands up, don't shoot. Um, and so last week I was was there and the, the father was, this the fifth anniversary of the shooting uh, and the father's there and, and at this, of, of Michael Brown and and it was choreographed. The New York Times was there at the news conference. Uh, All the major newspapers were there. Time Magazine was there. Not a single black person from Ferguson was there. Not one. Uh, Why was the the media there like that? Power. They see see the, the the killing of a black man as their source of power, their, their, the Democratic Party in America is based entirely on the idea that they fight the menace of racism and Republicans don't. And, and so it's, they, they find a moment like that electrifying. Week before that, we were on the south side of Chicago. In 2016, 762 black kids were shot and killed. 3,000 were wounded. No media, no interest on the part of the president, the attorney general. All those people were in Ferguson when one kid got shot and killed by a white policeman. They were it, it, they were in Happy City. They had black victimization. Once the the once you have the the, the black victim. You have power. You can, you can elect people to office. Barack Obama is, was the president for no reason under the sun except for the fact that he was black. And he gave millions and millions of American people an opportunity to vote in a way that proved that they were innocent of racism. American. he understood that America is, is hungry to prove this uh, and, and to take the, the, the high ground. Well, he wasn't much of a president um, in, in, in many ways, but he got elected two times, uh, made one mistake after another in foreign policy, domestic affairs. Uh, but he, th- that's, I think, the power that, that liberalism in America has had since the 60s, coming out of this black militancy and so forth. Um, and, of course, the people who get hurt, here's the thing. This is, this is my passion. The people who get hurt are black people. Because we sit there stupidly, there's no other word for it, and define ourselves as victims uh, of white guilt, of, not of white guilt, of, of white racism. And we then, therefore, congeal and make a, a hard identity out of being a victim. Well, how well the victims do in life? So, in a sense, we we've we've gotten lost. We're, we've sold our soul in the hopes that we can get white some white people somewhere to fix all the problems we have. Now, where has that ever happened in the human condition? People can feel all the guilt that whites can feel all the guilt they want to feel. Is that gonna get you ahead? Is that gonna help your your child develop and learn to read and, and uh, do well in school and, be, and so forth and and, uh, and so on up the ladder. Uh, this I this this is the tragedy of of unspoken tragedy of American life. I think, is that we, the people that we that, that liberalism tries to help, are precisely the people that liberalism oppresses. I would much rather deal with any man any woman from the Ku Klux Klan than I would with a liberal. As they say, I am done with militant, angry blacks and with white liberals. That, that's the problem. It's a sickness in our society that flows from our history. And, and we're, we're working through that. Uh, and, and, and of course, the anxiety is that we're, in many ways, tearing the society to pieces in order to keep playing this game.
0: Now, there are two Democrats running for President Shelby who seek to go where Barack Obama went. One is Cory Booker, Stanford graduate. He has proposed um, pursuing cash reparations for descendants of slavery. Mm-hmm. It's, he has not put a dollar figure on it. All he's proposed is forming a commission to look into it. John Conyers, longtime Michigan congressman, Detroit congressman, proposed the same thing. Kamala Harris senator from here in California, has proposed $100 billion in HUD grants to go to black homeowners to help with down payments for closing costs in historically segregated neighborhoods. It's easy for Republicans to look at these ideas and poke holes in them. Um, I'm not sure how you'd put a dollar figure on reparations, Shelby. Let's say you were a descendant from
2: slaves who were My grandfather early. was a slave. My actual grandfather was, was a slave, Nelson Steele. When was he emancipated? In uh, when the emancipation, the yeah, 64. Right.
0: But in terms of figuring out reparations, what if your descendants were freed by George Washington? Well, I guess we're gonna whitewash in a San Francisco school, but if George Washington freed them versus your ancestor who escaped a slave owner, fought in the Civil War in the Massachusetts 54th, had a much more difficult road, if you will, Maybe you get more money than the other person. I'm not sure I figure out the cash side. The Kamala Harris proposal, the HUD grant, I'm not sure that's constitutional to single out a single group for housing grants over others. I'm not sure legally that holds up. It's easy for Republicans to derive these ideas, but let's look at numbers for a second. I assume you all follow politics to some extent, and the extent that you do, you know that Republicans do horribly with black voters. Can you name the last Republican who won a majority of the black vote in America? Start the Jeopardy music. Anybody? (laughs) Who do you think? Was it Ronald Reagan? Was it Richard Nixon? Okay, who was the Republican before Nixon? Dwight Eisenhower? What Republican came before Dwight Eisenhower? Hoover. The answer is Herbert Hoover in 1928. He's the last Republican to win a majority of the black vote. What percent did Donald Trump get in 2016? Eight percent. One percent better than John McCain, but Donald Trump was not running against Barack Obama. So the point I'm making, Shelby, is it's easy for Republicans to go after the likes of Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. But where are the Republican ideas? And I think you've had pushback in this direction, too. When you talk about white guilt, your critics will say, okay, what are Shelby Steele's ideas? So we have ten minutes left here to talk before we go to questions. Let's talk about your ideas. Is it, it won't a, take it, me 10 okay. minutes. But is it a matter, Shelby, of closing, <laughs> is it a matter of closing the prosperity gap? Is it closing the education gap? Is it the family gap, if you will? I read somewhere where the best way to get out of, the surest way to escape poverty is what? Have a high school diploma and have two parents. So I'm putting you in charge of how to solve this problem. How do you fix this problem? Everybody
2: already knows the solution. The, and, and Because they're all obvious, they all work work hard, don't have children when you can't raise them, so forth, very obvious things. And black, black family is, is in crisis, um, and and so forth. But what should, uh, I would like to see an ethos in America. The person who said this uh, beautifully uh, after the Civil War was Frederick Douglass, they asked him, well now we freed blacks, what should we do? Leave us alone, leave us alone, period. We'll figure it out, we'll find our strength, we'll find our voice, we'll find our real power. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll do, we used to do this kind of thing. Back in the day of segregation, we had a, one, Maharry, McHarr- one of the great medical schools in the South, on and on. There were, in the 19th century, there were 300 black millionaires. This, the, this is the evil of liberalism, is that it infuses us with this idea that we're getting a raw deal because we're black. And that until we somehow get fix that up and get that raw deal out of the way, uh, we, we're never gonna get anywhere. And they're right, you can't, no one, everything we've gotten, by some estimates, The government has spent, since the 60s, has spent over $22 trillion on programs for the inner city and so forth. Today, by every single socioeconomic measure, we're behind whites, farther than we were in the 50s when none of this existed. That level of failure is almost incomprehensible. Yet we completely ignore it and wonder about what? Reparations. If, if, as far as I'm concerned, my test for, for other blacks, if you give me all the reparations you wanna give me, I'm gonna tell you to stick it where the moon don't shine. I'm gonna have my dignity. You're not gonna take that away. And in the end, at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about. What kind of self-esteem do you have? What kind of pride do you really have? When you, you have children and you don't raise them? We met in the inner city, I was talking to one kid who's 19 years old, he's already got two kids. He started at 16. Well, if you if the, the issue here is self-pride, is self-esteem, you do, let white people worry about reparations. Let other people be foolish. We should not waste our time, not one minute. Affirmative action. So what you do is you take the stigma of black inferiority and you you then impose it on us once again by saying you wouldn't be in these universities if you weren't black. So again, you're rewarded for your inferiority, not because of your talent. And so you have no pride. You think the thing for me to do is cry and beg. You become, as I say, a militant beggar. And society is so damn guilty, they know, they go over the details of of slavery and all this all over again, that they're quite happy to put a little something in your hand, just a little something. When you say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to make it on my own, I'm going to take it, then you'll be where you need to be. Until we do that, then we're going to, in fact, live on an inferior existence. There's nothing you can do to help us. Frederick Douglass said this 150 years ago, leave us alone. Booker T. Washington said, cast down your buckets where you are. I love that. Those two, that, those two things are my, uh, my model. So, so reparations is we can have a big fat um, debate over that and blacks are still going to be at the bottom of every socioeconomic measure in the uh, that we have
0: Final question before we do Q&A Shelby You're attending an American University right now. You're in your teens your 20s and you want to learn about race and race relations History social sciences. What do you study? Who would you
2: read? I would read uh, number one. I, that's a that's a good question. I'd be here all day, to, because when I was that age, I was I, I was really hungry to find out. Uh, one of the first people I just fell passionately in love with was James Baldwin. Um, now, p- politically, toward the end, I disagree with everything he uh, he said, but he opened up the experience. He saw whites and blacks as human beings, and he. The distinction is that people will say, well, when you're talking about the race problem, that blacks have 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 the race problem. No, 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 no. Blacks don't have a race problem. Human beings have a problem with race. We don't do very well with it. We keep asking it to do things it can't possibly do. We think it means something that it doesn't really mean at all. We keep acting as though it's the door to some sort of illumination. It's the door to darkness, but we keep thinking that it's it's uh, it's, it's going to just um, bring us some bring us something. And, and uh, uh, so again, I Baldwin helped me understand that um, my great God, uh, that that uh, who has just meant everything to me, uh, is Ralph Ellison, who I think. Uh, Invisible Man is the greatest American novel of the 19th century. I'd be happy to of the 20th century. I'd I'd be happy to defend that that judgment. On it is just a a stunning uh, existential masterpiece. Uh, You want to understand what you you really go into uh, the Black American experience, not in some silly idea with racism or not racism, but. But how do we deal with it as human beings? Because the thing is, at the end of the day, we're all human. And uh, what, we, we, you know, we make again, we make problems for ourselves the, the second we get away from that. But Ralph Ellison is uh, one of the greatest minds. Both his novel, Invisible Man, and his uh, collections of essays uh, are just an absolute education. He has no peer. Uh, there, there are some other good writers too. I like the early Richard Wright. Um, I like the early Toni Morrison, uh, who, I, who was a tremendously gifted writer. I disagree with her politically, but what a gift she has. Um, and she, at her best, she's on that human level, not on a racial level. Uh, and when she's on that human level, oh my God, is she a novel like Sula? Um, you wanna look into the human experience, there it is. Uh, so that's what, uh, now I read all the militants too, Elders Cleaver, she, uh, his, his uh, book, and, and uh, uh, I went through a, a, a militant phase. Uh, I got on an airplane, I flew to, to uh, Algiers, Algeria, because the, the government there had given the Black Panthers uh, asylum and put them up in a very nice house in the city of Algiers uh, where they were, they were then hijacking airplanes, escaping the law in America, and, and uh, they were going to use this as a base to come back and have a revolution in America. And so I went there with my lovely wife over here, where she's at, um, and we spent a good little bit of time with them until I realized they were thugs. They walked around with big, big guns. Uh, they were, many of them had, had committed murder in America and were on the lam. Um, they weren't these, these marvelous revolutionaries that I'd shake a verotypes that I thought they were going to be. And uh, you begin to feel them kind of close in. And at, point, at which point I ran to the airport with my wife, and uh, and uh, we flew out of there, out of that country, and landed in Nigeria in the middle of the Biafran War, and we were held in the airport for I don't know how many days at, at gunpoint <laughs> before they finally gave us a plane to get out of there. But so I was—I flirted with with militancy. Uh, But when I came back home from that uh, trip, I I said very clearly, I'm gonna go to graduate school. I'm gonna gonna make something. I'm gonna uh, make a life here. Uh, It may not be perfect, but I'm gonna make a life here. And uh, so my views slowly began to evolve and As we began to fear. a, a, A different direction altogether.
0: There is a lot more we can talk about. We could talk about the Obama legacy. We haven't brought up Colin Kaepernick a whole lot we can get into these days, but I think we owe it to you to take some Q&A. So, got a question, raise your hand, just wait for the uh, the microphone. Yes, uh, you right there, ma'am. Thank you for being here today. My question is, what is your opinion on the term white privilege and it being thrown away, uh, thrown around college campuses? And if you think racism is a, a tool that's only exclusively used towards minorities, or could you be racist towards white people, or Asian people, or can you only be racist towards um, black Americans?
2: Uh, Well, quickly, the last question. Racism, anybody can be racist against anybody. Um, I can say, oh, I hate all uh, Berkeley students. They're all this way and they're that way and and, and so forth. Um, White privilege is nothing but a way to, nothing at all, but a way to expand black victimization, which in America today, is enormous power. So we, we, no one will tell you what white privilege is in any real way, um, except to say that it that that it exists, and that's where black victimization comes from, and that the police are trying to put all black men in jail and and shoot them. And this, I, we have to expand this this notion. This is the trouble the left is in, we won. The left won its great freedom for minorities, won that battle. And so now they've got to have another menace to fight against in order to justify their existence. Liberalism has no, no good menace today. And so they go back and say, well, oh, racism is still here. We still have racism. And that justifies our quest for power. Uh, And so who gets used and exploited in that formula? Black people. Because white privilege means black victimization. Uh, So it's a con game. Uh, We have a, a word for it in black America. Trick bag. It's a trick bag. And I'm ashamed that we don't see it as such. We know better. We're smarter people. We should be the first one to tell white people, you got a problem with guilt, that's your problem. I got a a life to live here.
0: Hi, Um, thank you so much for coming today. I am the black president of the Wellesley College Republicans. My treasurer is black and the majority of our e-board are people of color. Um, But constantly when even trying to address policy discussions on campus, we're told that we suffer from internalized oppression and that essentially cuts the conversation off at that. I'm wondering what advice you have for black conservatives on college campuses, and how you how, if at all, you would hold a conversation with someone who focuses completely on the color of your skin rather than even addressing your policy points.
2: Well, you said it very well there uh, at, at the end. Um, you know ask them why they feel a the need to focus entirely on the color of your skin. But to ask, answer the larger question I think you're asking. Uh, you're in a tough spot, and there's no other. There's no way to fake that. You are in a tough spot um, because people want to use you as an emblem, a symbol of oppression, and that you have you have psychologically identified with your enemy, your dis, your your destruct, destructor, uh, and so you are a, uh, an Uncle Tom. Well. I'm a a proud Uncle Tom, Uh, if that's what it comes down to. Um, The truth is, what you're doing is a great thing. It is a good thing. You won't get results tomorrow, but down the line, you will. And the challenge for people in your position and in my position is to keep fighting. They will do everything to stop you. Because you you threaten their raison d'etre, their reason for being. Uh, You you threaten it by saying, I'm a Republican. My God, that's anathema. Uh, But power to you, God bless you. Um, You you will make a difference in the long run because pretty soon we blacks are going to wake up. I think Mr. Trump is already helping us a little bit there going to wake up, and things things are going to shift. And uh, you'll be a part of that.
0: Hi, thank you so much, Dr. Steele, for coming and talking to us. I'm Morgan, I go to the University of Texas at Austin, and I'm very proud of my school, and as it starts to move forward on a, a diver- diversity standpoint and starting to push forward, um, one of our uh, peers, Adrian, has pointed out that only 1.7 of the student population is African-American males. And so I'm just wondering what your thoughts on diversity outside of affirmative action for university campuses are.
2: You mean how they can become more diverse? Is that what you're?
0: How they can become more diverse, yes. Or just like your
2: thoughts in general on. About that? diversity? Mm-hm. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. All right. <laughs> um. Again, I go back to my model. From I take from from Frederick Douglass. Please leave us alone. If you, diversity is your prize, somebody somebody wants to deal with that. Uh, but if I get a position at the University of Texas or whatever, I want to I want to be certain that I'm getting it because the people there feel that I have something real to offer, and that I'm winning that position. Uh, on the basis, broadly, of merit. Many things can be meritorious, um, but I, I want that. I want that esteem. If I don't have that, I'm a second-rater who obli- who's, lives in obligation to ev- all of my colleagues, who can stop any day of the week and say, you wouldn't even be here if you weren't black. Um, well, diversity, again, is a white guilt idea that whereby whites say we want to organize an optic, an appearance as though there was no, there's never been racism in all of American history. So diversity is, is optical, it's about optics, not about the real fundamental human equality of, of people. Uh, and so it's worthless, it's a, it's a distraction. It is a device by which guilty whites can say, I'm not not a racist. Most race policy in America today is driven by the idea that um, uh, is simply a vehicle by which whites say, I'm not guilty. I'm not a racist. Yes, you are. If If you go along with diversity, you by definition have to be a racist. It's a race mathematics. It's a race. It's a racial optics. We don't have enough people of a word that fascinates me. People of color. When I grew up, it was colored people. Now it's people of color. What's the difference? But if you call me a colored, that's almost as bad as the N word. Um, uh, and what, what's the what, you know what, the 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 confusion that that um, it becomes almost absurd the way we talk about race and, and and so forth today because of this this fundamental sense that you can have something like diversity and, and uh, it's a, automatically a good thing. Uh, and so I'm all for it just like I voted for Obama.
0: So I had not really heard about the 1619 Project done by the New York Times, but would you say that's studying African-American history or continuing this research is wrong in any way? Or if it is something that should be done, how
1: would someone go about it without exercising power in your words?
2: Well, when I was in high school, I read a book called Before the Mayflower by Laurent Bennett, a story of just what they're talking about now, 50-some years later. We've always been doing research on how do they know if the research hasn't been done for a long time? Um, it is simply another way to expand black victimization. We've overlooked their history. Now we have to go back and have a whatever it is, a 1619 program and, incl- and we use the word inclusive uh, and include them. Well. My idea, my idea is that history is history, and, and people who are historians should be studying fully in every, all its detail American history, which means you would certainly study the, the Mayflower and, what, what does, and the, the, be, the very beginnings of slavery and how it evolved in American life. That's, that's reality. That's what history, historians do. It's not. A, it, don't do it for the sake of my identity. Do it because you're an historian, and you want an accurate record of history. Um, but it's not a gift to me. I, I now know there was there were slaves on the Mayflower. Well, I knew that 50 years ago. So what? Uh, well, somebody's trying to. This is how really base and manipulative race, racial politics and policymaking uh, have become. Uh, again, it, it's a field of power. It can only be understood as, it has nothing to do with reality, everything to do with power. Uh, and we don't have an American society at this moment, any real menaces that we can organize a, polit- a political movement behind. We are a very advanced, free, wealthy country. We are so blessed. And so we have to now, and the only thing we can grab onto is our history of slavery to give us a menace. Uh, Even though the people who are supposed to be menaced are now free and can do whatever they want to do. So we're, this is where, we're, where America, is, is, as, a, as a culture, is, a, is in trouble, I think, is in, in, in trouble. It can, when, when you have to have all these fictions that you live by, what happens is you lose your capacity to know what's real, what the real problems are. The real problems in black America have nothing to do with racism. They have to do with a completely shattered family. 76 77% of all black children are today are born with no father anybody can tell you that 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 the the absence of a father is a, is a destructive thing it's not insurmountable but it's, it places profound barriers to the the development of the people of, of children in that sort of in that in that kind of a circumstance uh, and you you walk around as I did recently, Ferguson, Missouri and, and St. Louis and Chicago and, and you see 14, 15 year- old boys who cannot read or write, who uh, stay here with an uncle for a certain amount of time there with another you know the, the racism is not there <laughs> is, is not their problem. their problems are human, but when we keep politicizing race and so forth. Then we cover over the reality, uh, the, the, the real destructiveness. There should be a, a campaign to put the black family back together, to do, but you have to do some difficult things uh, to do that. You have to ask blacks to, to really take responsibility for themselves and do better. You have to say, yeah, maybe we did have slavery, maybe we oppressed you, but you are not, you're free now and you need to take more responsibility for advancing. What's, but now responsibility is a verboten word when you're talking about black people. Yet responsibility and self-reliance is the only thing that, that, that blacks uh, have or ever will have to, to move ahead in American life.
0: Let's do one last question, but it's gonna have to be an awfully quick one. And...
1: Thank you. Um, I have a question about the labor market for blacks, relative
2: to those of whites. Um, there's a lot of economic research that shows that black men earn less, on average, or with earn less than whites with similar skills. And there's also a paper that shows that if, I'm a, if it's a randomized control trial that sends out resumes with um, black-sounding names and white names, and they show that for every 10 resumes sent out by a white person, they get a call back. Whereas for every 15 resumes sent out by a black person, they get a call back. So if not racism in the labor market, what else do you think could be driving these differences? What else I think? What could could be driving
0: these differences in labor market outcomes?
2: What's driving those differences is the fact that as, as blacks, we have not decided to become competitive and to compete with other people, other groups. Uh, we keep thinking that our victimization will get us something. And this is perfectly human, human, this is understandable. You come from a group that's been systematically, devastatingly oppressed for four centuries. They're going to believe once they get free that all of that suffering, all that oppression adds up now to a ticket to ride, a way ahead. And and I, I'm the you know uh, we're, uh, we're we're back in that same thing. My victimization is now going to be rewarded in some way. No, it's not. Uh, I don't know whether there's racism. Maybe there is racism there. Maybe there isn't. Uh, but that's no excuse for uh, neglecting to move ahead on our own. To be responsible. Um, and and. All the laws are in our favorites. against the law to discriminate against people. When you run into that, take it to court. I did. One, uh, got a house that I was, was not allowed to rent because I was black. Well, guy, a judge took him gave him the highest left fine possible under the civil rights law. Well, do that. Uh, and, you, and, and that, will, that discrimination will, will go away at that point. But you're fighting real discrimination there. Um, and that's, God knows, that's, a, that's wonderful. But our problem is much deeper, much broader, is that we have not decided to compete uh, on, uh, with other groups in American life. In those areas where we do decide to compete with other groups in American life, sports, music, We don't just do well, we dominate. Well, why do we dominate in basketball, for example? Well, when I was a kid, I played basketball. Every, you put a basketball around me, I'm gone. Blacks, we loved it. We'd be out there Saturday morning at seven, we'd play until dark. In other words, we worked hard at it. The standards rose and rose and rose. The competitiveness was more and more intense. Uh, And we got so good they couldn't keep us out anymore. We took over the sport. We're doing the same with football. Anytime we we decide to to go, well, basketball players get discriminated against too, don't they? Why, why don't we do that in the sciences? Why don't we do that in the law? Why don't we do that in, in business, in other areas? Uh, because we keep believing that victimization is gonna get us ahead. It is, victimization didn't make us good basketball players. Hard work did. We're not natively born better. We just worked harder at it. Folks,
0: please join me in, th- in thanking Shelby Steele for joining the policy
2: Thank you, thank you. Thank you. You've
0: you been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, I recommend that you sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Dr. Shelby Steele and his colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. If you want to read more and learn more about Shelby Steele and his remarkable story, you can find his writing at Amazon.com. But I also encourage you to go to the Hoover.org page and read his biography, and there you'll find a lot of his very fine works. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dauer for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.